0: All right, everybody. Today, you're going to have in a, one of our, I think, our favorite interviews so far. Don't you think, Sandra? I think so. How fabulous. Um, I met Chuck, uh, oh my gosh, about six months ago, and he and I sat down and we had coffee. And I was, I felt like I had found the sage on top of the mountain that I'd been seeking for, who not only just, uh, just sewed into me, but, man, totally... Fired me up. You guys are the. the you guys are going to love this this uh, conversation. we you're about to hear. Uh, here's a little bit about Chuck. He's. Uh, I love this. You know. I love this term, serial sure, entrepreneur. But he really is one. Uh, he's actually started eleven companies successfully. He's an international speaker, best-selling author. Uh, he writes for Inc. Magazine and New York Times and Success and Entrepreneur and CNN Money and. And okay, you guys get that. you get the point here, right, so he built those eleven businesses in seven industries on four continents, and now a hundred percent of what he does is using his experience to advise and help others uh, and his company that he founded called the Crankset group it uh, provides outcome based mentoring and peer advisory for business leaders. You can learn a little bit about uh, his three to five clubs i 'd really encourage you guys to check those out i 've been to those they 're amazing. Uh, Chuck sold one of his companies to one of the largest consumer fulfillment uh, organizations in America. Um, led three other between ten and hundred million dollar companies, um, and as he's uh, he's also leading the Crankset set group uh, and a for profit business in Africa. You can hear a little bit about what he's doing in the Congo and uh, what's happening there is actually fascinating. Um, and he's really focused on developing local economies to solve poverty. And so he is a big time he's a results driven leader. He's got just decades of experience in all these different industries. So you guys are going to love this interview with with Chuck and but here's one thing that he's you're going to hear. Um in Chuck in succeeding in all these these 11 different companies and thousands of client companies there really is one thing that has been foundational to, the, to his success when he connected to it, something that he teaches, he shares to everybody that he works with. And man, that part of the conversation is incredibly powerful, wasn't it, Sandra? Uh,
1: so powerful. I mean, we, we kept going and going. I mean, it's, I think, our longest podcast ever.
0: Yeah, totally. And what, what else did he talk about about some of the other things that we're going to learn on this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, what I love about this is, you know, this is truly for anybody, you know, whether you're a 14-year-old who's thinking about starting a lawn business or someone who's thinking of relaunching their career after children or someone who's out working now or, or someone who's retired. I mean, what he talks about is is so applicable to everybody, no matter what life stage you're in. And, you know, what I love, I always talked about, you know, that my success in life was because of scrappiness. Uh, Chuck calls it relentless that, you know, he was ADHD, dyslexic kid who barely graduated from high school. I mean, literally. And, um, you know, his his mom had, uh, you know, just not even to be mean, but had, you know, told him, gosh, that's so dumb his entire life. So here he was, this 18 year old who had a big label on his head of, you know, being a dummy and couldn't do anything. And so. He went and joined the army because, you know, every every self-label he had was negative. And so then in the army, he started realizing, wait a minute, I actually can be successful and, and I can do a lot of different things. And But it was because he was relentless. But, you know, it's so true that until we remove those labels that other people give us and find what our own self-identity is, you know, who, who, who am I really? Who does the Lord really uh, think I am? What's that Ephesians 2.10 set of giftedness that he gave me from birth? And until we know what those are and truly embrace those, uh, it's extremely hard for us to be happy or healthy or successful. And so He, he's taken that general premise that you and I believe so much in, John, and he's applied it to business around the world in a way that just makes total sense. I mean, you, you read these books and you hear him speak and his TED Talks are great. And it's like, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, he's amazing. The other thing we talk about, too, is the difference between leadership and management. Man, this is a, a fascinating part of the conversation. And I think this is going to uh, reshape how you guys see how you're showing up in the world, how you're showing up in your family, in your marriage, with your kids. Um, And I got to tell you, when he first shared this with me six months ago, it actually changed how I was actually working with my clients, both in the military, the corporations that I was working with, and the coaching. I tell you, it it is a powerful part of the conversation. And he also talked about uh, what were your takeaways on our part of the conversation about just – building this incredible culture and and in the organization about how he builds his company how he hires sandra
1: Yeah, I mean, he calls it, instead of employees, he calls it hiring stakeholders. And he doesn't believe in having managers. He believes in hiring people in as a stakeholder and then leading them to here is our joint expectation and then basically getting out of the way, you know, empowering them to do it on their timing with their process and their set of gifts. And that as long as you get to the desired outcome at the end, everybody wins. But he's totally focused on the employee. You know, he talks about knowing what, you know, what what stakeholders mom was put in the hospital yesterday. And then if he didn't know about that, then he's failed. And then if you can pour into the people um, that they will be incredibly loyal and incredibly fulfilled and, you know, that you're you're employing the entire person and not just that tiny little part of them that can do a very specific skill. So I love it when he talks about his hiring process, you know, that he doesn't hire for a specific skill set for a specific job. He doesn't even look at that
0: till what, step seven or eight in the process. Yeah,
1: there's an 11-step process for hiring, and they, they post these gigantic job ads and uh, they don't even want to see your resume. If you send your resume in the first email, they just delete it because you didn't even read the ad. <laughs>
0: and the other thing here, just to wrap this up, just reflecting on this conversation we just had, everybody, and Sandra, I love what you said, right? Whether this is a 14-year-old who wants to start a lawn business, um, you know, just hearing Chuck's story, right? Uh, coming out of, you know, where he came from, not having a lot of education, uh, struggling with a lot of self-image identity things the thing that really struck me sandra was any one of us right now wherever we're at in life whatever decisions that we've made whatever results and outcomes we have right now whether you're just frustrated at your job you're just stressed out driving into work on monday your relationships are terrible or, or even you're enjoying what you're doing but it's not having the impact you want to have whatever wherever you are In this interview, you are going to be able to pull some things out to help you find that next step forward that's going to move you toward this full life, right? A lot of we hear from a lot of you, right? I want to figure out how to live a life fully alive. I don't know what it looks like. I just know I don't have it. And I really feel, and I know because we just had this conversation, you're going to pull some things out of this interview with Chuck that are going to allow you to take that next first step. So please, I want to hear from you what your takeaways were from this podcast. Go to the show notes at eternalleadership.com for our podcast. Post what your takeaways were or shoot me an email. I'll be happy to post it for you, John at eternalleadership.com. And Sandra, this is a great interview. You guys are going to love it. Um, and here we go. All right, Sandra, on this edition of the, the Eternal Leadership Podcast, you and I have just been talking about uh, this entire year and our theme is just moving into action and what it takes to do that successfully and and how do we think and how do we show up and what are things that you and I have done to kind of step into, uh, you know, making a difference, building a platform. And uh, today we have Chuck Blakeman with us. Chuck, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
0: And, and as we were just talking, Sandra, with, with Chuck about his whole background, I know that you were, you were getting pretty energized. What is it about this topic that really connects to, you know, some of the things that you've done?
1: Well, first of all, I just really relate to Chuck's background. You know, I'm a left-handed, right-brained person who's super scrappy. I use the word scrappy. He uses the word relentless and you know, came from um, a very humble background with a super smart, scrappy mom, just like he did. So just really relate to that. You know, I'm a big believer and your roots are so important to, uh, you know, your future success. Uh, you know, I love that he was in the army and the self-starter because, you know, again, I, I'm a self-starter and, you know, I had to start working at 14 to to save up to pay for college and, Hitchhike to Jobs and all those sorts of great stories like, like Chuck has. So I just have sort of this passion for a shared background. Um, and, you know, emotional intelligence is something you know, John, that I'm very passionate about. I believe that, you know, education's important and, and being relentless and passionate and scrappy are all great. But, you know, being able to walk into a room and read what's going on and, and being able to discern how to get people to a yes uh that's what's gotten me in my career the furthest.
0: Yeah, and I, I love that about both of you. Um, I always shared, you know, with my kids, I might not be the sharpest tool in the drawer, but I, I know that I can always, I can outwork anybody around me. That was always my motto. But Chuck, I, I'd love to, you know, because uh, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the things that you've done, but you started out and you shared that, you know what, there was 525 kids in your graduating class. And when you graduated, if there had been 524 jobs, you would have been the one left standing. So even with this attitude and this relentlessness, right, where you were coming from and where you are now has been a uh, pretty tremendous journey. I'd love for you to share some of that before we dive in and really talk about some of the things that that we're going to be teaching on today.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, I'm 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 not sure I've hit my stride yet, but I am what they would call <laughs> a, late, a late bloomer, and uh, it did start from my childhood, and I, I, I'm so uh, I never shared this stuff before my mother passed because it would crush her because we actually had a really great relationship, and and so much of what I talk about I got from my mom, but there, there was one of those things as a kid you you she says and you latch to and you actually believe it when she didn't actually mean it, but she said it a lot. And what she said was that when I did something stupid or even silly or comical, she'd say something like, uh, what a dumb, how, how dumb was that? How dumb a kid are you? You must be the dumbest kid alive. How dumb can you be? And sometimes it was in deep frustration when I did something, you know, uh, played hooky or whatever. How dumb can you be? You must be the dumbest kid alive. And apparently, I, you know, we, uh, we all live up to, our, uh, to people's lowest expectations of us because, They actually did have me in the principal's office the day of graduation, deciding whether they would let me go. And I think the consensus, it was sort of like a a Charlie Brown episode. I was looking at everybody's knees, and they sounded like, walk, 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 with my ADHD and my dyslexia and all that stuff. And I think the consensus was, hey, if we don't let him graduate, we'll have him around for another year, so let's get him the heck out of here. (laughs) And I joined the Army. I I, I went to music school. I got a full scholarship in music to go to the Cleveland Institute of Music. And I went there for a couple of years, uh, and the only reason I went into music was because the only thing I knew to do. But I actually left that and went into the army because I was pretty sure that, again, that I just I would never be able to get a job. And the army won't reject anyone as long as they have a, a high school degree. I knew I already had that, so I was in, and so I went into the army band. And in the army band, I began to to. Uh, my entrepreneurial nature began to come forward and I started a, a simple little business while I was in the army Then I started another one while I was in the army and by the time I got out and 10 years later I'd had five or so and, and uh, it was probably in my early 40s or my late 30s where I actually began to realize you know I got something to offer to the world I actually, I actually can make a contribution I probably still am unemployable and I think that's been a theme throughout my life I actually am, am unemployable nobody would want me for good reasons uh, uh, but I, uh, the end result has been that as I've grown over the years and, and uh, learned to gain confidence in these things, the army was was tr- was a key element in that, in teaching me that I could do things that I could never thought possible. I'll never forget the day we I, I, I hit boot camp. They made us stuff all these things, an unreasonable amount of stuff into a small. Uh, 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 bag and that was the test basically (laughs) and I said there's no possible way I could get all this in this bag and somehow I got it all in it was one of those moments where you realize you know you you see things in life that you think aren't possible and instead of saying this isn't possible you ask how do I do this and that that mindset I couldn't articulate it at the moment but that's really a, a transitional mindset for me where I began to ask how could I do this? And life is fascinating. Rather than I can't do this, and life is is uh, has a border around it. And as a result, over the years, I've gotten to where I've now done eleven businesses in eight industries on four continents, and we're just getting started.
0: <laughs> yes, and and knowing you, you are just getting started. But and you know, we have so many people, you know, that tune in. You know, they're business owners. They're they're already they're entrepreneurs. They're looking at trying to get to that next level. Um, or, you know, they're folks like you and I were in our 20s and 30s, right? And we were striving towards something. We didn't know exactly how to get there. And the Army kind of gave you this, uh, uh, this this, time to kind of reflect, develop an identity, you know, succeed and fail. And, you know, a large part of the population, it's not just millennials. You know, we hear a lot about millennials, but I've, I think this is a generational thing. There's a lot of people that are just stuck in neutral. I think there's ninety five percent of us that are just um, what I call it, kind of living at this level of mediocrity. And yeah. what advice would you have, or how how do we actually start thinking differently, taking some steps to kind of reshape maybe how how we per, not only perceive ourselves but perceive you know what we can accomplish and do in the world around us?
2: Well, we're talking about my first book, Making Money Is Killing Your Business today, which uh, I'm thrilled about. It's been through two. Uh, uh, two, five editions and two, or five, two editions and five printings and all that good stuff. My second book actually begins to deal with this idea uh, of of what it is that's got people stuck, and it starts with industrial age thinking. The industrial age was a, I call it a pimple on the face of business. It's really a pimple on the face of humanity. We look back at it with awe. And in some cases, even reverence. And yet, I would look back on it, having studied it intensively, as one of the worst possible things that has ever happened to humanity. It's the best possible thing that ever happened to technology. But that's where we get ourselves crossed up. Well, look at all the great toys that came out of the industrialists. Everything we have today has its roots there. You can't possibly find fault with what we did. But if you look at what it did to humanity, it destroyed so many of the fundamentals of what it means to be human. What's the number one question that you weren't allowed to ask for 150 years? The the most human of questions, it's why? Who, when, how, and why? An animal will ask the other five, but it won't ask why. It's the most human of questions, and it's the one that was stripped out of us during the industrial age. And why, and and, and there was good reasons for that. They, they, They did not want you asking why, because if you ask why am I doing this, you wouldn't have done it the big why is the one that that answers your question on why is it so many people are in neutral or just going through the motions. It's because for 150, almost 200 years, we were taught we should not have a personal big why. We should not have a reason to live that is disconnected from our vocation or uses our vocation to build something greater than just our vocation. It's not that they're separate things. They're integrated. But one, but the the work serves the the purpose rather than you serving the work. And for 150 plus years, we were taught that that uh, working for the the corporation, the corporation had a purpose, and your job was to serve the corporation, to be a big blue, you know, to be to be with IBM and wear a blue suit. I mean, it was it was the meaning of life. We've been we finally figured out that we were sold a bill of goods. So that's a very long beginning answer to the idea that. The number one reason that people are in neutral or uh, are just going through the motions is because they don't have any, they don't have any reason to be alive that's bigger than survival.
1: Wow. I, I'm, uh, I'm often so, I love your you know, your research talking about in the Industrial Revolution people became extensions of machines and so then instead of leading people people managed the people like an extension of the machine and so it really dehumanized them um, and you know I, I think that is so so accurate and so you know and we all worked for those companies I remember my graduating new hire class there were 60 of us and we were you know sort of standing on the ivory tower steps and every Everyone had on a blue, navy, or black suit, and I was right in the center with this hot pink dress and big orange scarf on. And uh, you know, so from the very beginning, I I was rebelling against the big blue machine. Um, But you're you're so right. You know, we we put people into all these little boxes. You know, my passion is about. Um, You know, we have this whole thing about first impressions and seven seconds and then we slap a label on somebody and go, "Okay, well, you're the smart one. You're the lazy one. You're the funny one. You're the jock. You're the this. And we do that to kids, too. And then we put people in a bucket and we treat them that way for the rest of their lives. And so then that self-fulfilling prophecy happens. So, you know, something that I love when reading your material is thinking about applying it to actual parenting. right? I it's
2: mean, always- how cool. Do you do you teach parenting classes, too? Come on. Yeah. I, I only do that to business owners. And then they say, hey, that sounds like parenting. I said, yeah, I'll take that home. Because <laughs> if, if what we teach them on how to relate to other people is anything inconsistent with how we would relate to our family, then there's something wrong with it. So, absolutely, it all applies everywhere.
1: Yeah, I love that. I just think children are um you know you you said it when talking about your mom you know your mom just was frustrated and just said oh gosh don't be you why are you being so goofy why it are you was so stupid
2: statement for her it was an uh, absolute yeah. i took it on it wasn't her fault it was my responsibility that i decided it was true
1: Well, and think about how many parents out there are listening right now, like me, whose heart is being pricked because, you know, we just joke around and go, oh, my gosh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And it's just a silly little statement. But, you know, my little eight-year-old, I can, you know, he's really sensitive. And every time one of us says that, I just see his little heart shrink a little bit like the Grinch.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting as you're talking about this, too, is, you know, getting to that personal why, that personal vision, purpose and mission, which is incredibly important, but you know, in this this area of our self identity, you know, it, it's formed in three areas. First of all, just our own personal experiences, um, how we've seen ourselves through our own eyes. The the second area is what has been said to us. Right? So, you know, in in a lot and then the third one is social comparisons. And this is a tough one, especially in this hyper connected, mock five social media age, because that is uh, social comparisons are what we think that other people think about us, but maybe they haven 't said it directly and so right. so here's the here 's the the cold, hard fact is that a lot of us, including myself has have let in lies into internally and internalized them that are actually not not truth, but we've accepted them as truth. Maybe I'm dumb or I'm stupid or I'm not a good communicator or I'm not good at leading a team or maybe I'm just not good enough to start something on my own, um, right? Maybe uh, when I started, when I wanted to start my first company, my mom told me she was em- ashamed of me and embarrassed and started crying and, you know, so you can imagine what in that one little moment, what that communicated to me is the people who I'm closest to do not see me as anybody that could succeed on my own as an entrepreneur. And I got to tell you, man, that held me back for so long until I had to, I figured out I had to strip some of that away. So I think, one, you know, one of the key things that we all need to do uh, to to move toward that personal vision, purpose and mission is get to the truth of who we are.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a delicate balance because in one, point, in one, in one way, we, are, we should be very careful to take on as much counsel as we can. And then the other flip side of that is we have to be equally careful to ignore the stuff that is going to keep us from getting where we need to go. And that is an art, not a science, because someone could tell you you shouldn't start a business and they could be right. Or someone could tell you you shouldn't start a business and they could be wrong. And so you take on as much counsel as you can, but then you have to sift it through what's going on in your life and what you really need and what you really want. And you'll be wrong there as well. But uh, absolutely, we have to follow what our heart says. My mother said when I left the Army, you're crazy, man. You've got safety, security, and stability wrapped up, which she never had as a as a pre- depression baby. You can, you can coast through life for 40 years. I said, yeah, that's the problem. I'm out of here. And, and same thing. She thought I was absolutely crazy. So there was no support there as well. And you, and you have to work through that stuff and realize she's wrong. I love her counsel, but this is inhumane. This is re, I have to this is dehumanizing and I have to rehumanize. I'm out of here.
0: Yeah. And you know yeah, that's so exactly people- where my uh, parents were coming from. Chuck was their depression folks. Right. Why would yep. I leave the security of a job and benefits and a paycheck and to be able to get a promotion to go take all this risk that you could lose everything because they've been in that place where they've lost things?
2: And Sandra, hold your thought a second because I want to respond because that to me is is really what we're talking about here. That is the the legacy of the industrial age brought alive to us is that our parents were taught, shut up, sit down, don't make waves, live quietly or Uh, Yeah, live quietly and go out quietly Uh, and live invisibly, really, and go out quietly with a gold watch. And that's what they thought we should do as well. So if you have a depression age uh, mother or father, you were taught that you were not supposed to have a a personal purpose. You go to work to make meaning. Stop whining and, and get home. That's why people don't understand millennials. They think millennials are lazy. No, they aren't. They're just the first... Uh, uh, the first uh, generation did not grow up in the shadow of the industrial age. So they're not going to put up with the job because the job only pays the bills. They want work because work is meaningful. So we need to make meaning and not make money. People are coasting because they were taught to. That's the only reason. You're so right. I
1: went to my dad after five years at Procter and Gamble and said, Oh dad, I'm so excited. I'm going to work for Coca-Cola. And he completely shamed me. And I I said, coca-cola dad and he's like well why why are you jumping ship you're supposed to retire from that company and say that whole idea of the gold watch and the cake after 40 years is that's that's all they knew and so anything other than that was failure but you know let's if we look at your book i have to say i love this company that you've described no titles no departments no corporate ladder no office hours unlimited vacation time and profit sharing you know i could you give me a gig please Jerry well,
2: I was actually standing in line for three minutes with someone getting on an airplane who was behind me. My One of my cohorts and I were standing, uh, getting on an airplane. We only talked for about two or three minutes and we struck on a couple of these ideas because she was struggling with her job. And she literally said, give me your business card. I want. Will you please hire me? We never have to look for people. We, we've got uh, people banging down the doors who want to get in because we recognize that they're actually self-managed adults who don't need a manager, and, and uh, when they realize that, that there's a company out there like that, uh, they're all banging down the doors. We're not the only one. I can identify 100-plus large ones and thousands of smaller ones that are running with a rehumanized workflow uh, place where they gave everybody their brain back and they stopped managing people.
1: But, boy, the hiring process in that kind of environment <coughs> must be very, very different and very rigorous,
2: it is. We uh, we have an eleven-step hiring process that refutes everything the industrial age taught us. We never hire first for skills or experience. We almost never hire. Well, we never hire for experience uh, because we can teach experience, and we almost never hire for skills because we can teach skills. We hire for talent because you can't teach that, and we hire for uh, culture and beliefs. And I'm not talking race, creed, religion, sex, any of that stuff. I'm talking business beliefs. What do you believe about work? Why would you come to work? We will not hire someone who comes to work to make money. We want someone who comes to work to make meaning. What do you believe about success? Success is us actually uh, uh, making a difference in the world around us, not us uh, smashing the other guy. What do you believe about competition? What do you believe about business in general, about economics? So these are business beliefs that we hire for, that have to do with the way we run our business and uh, it does uh, and, and that's the number one thing we, we test for we're hiring two people right now and that's the first we ask them please don't send us your resume just send us the answers to these seven questions and if we like the answers to their culture questions and that stuff then we send them talents uh tests and if we like the answers to their talent test then we'll get them to do demonstrated skills etc etc almost If we look at the resume, it's probably at step eight or nine when we got four or five people left. And even then, we don't look at it for traditional reasons. What,
0: what are That's your seven fantastic. questions that you ask? Because I was talking with Kyle about the process he went through to join your team. And man, it was fascinating what he was sharing with me as he went through your process.
2: Yeah, well, let me pull one up here because they're in our, our ads. First of all, while I'm doing that, I can tell you one of, the, one of the things we do differently is we put out obscenely long ads. I'm talking of 10, 12 pages, single space before we flow it into wherever we're we're doing this uh, because we want people who uh, want to interview us. We tell them everything about us that we possibly can. And buried in the middle of it, it says this. We don't need to see your resume yet. Please do not send it. And please don't call. For now, just email us the answers to the following questions. Here's some of them. How is this position a fit for you? And what would you get out of working in this environment described here? What is your reaction to our values, vision, and mission statements that we We share these in this ad and then we talk about why they're so important to us. What's your reaction to that? That's culture stuff. That's beliefs. How can we support you? What do you need from us to be successful? That's a very well positioned question that will bring out the best and the worst in somebody because we can find out that they're either codependent on us and they need that kind of support or they need us to come alongside them and and cheer them on and and be an interdependent uh, team player with them. What makes you get out of bed and come to work day after day? We wanna hear making meaning, not making money. Why don't you need a manager? We just assume that. We're not gonna ask, do you need one? Why don't you need one? We wanna hear some really good answers for that. How do you make your team better? We wanna hear that they that they believe in working together that we're mammals and we're made to live in community. And then list the top three things in order of impact you could bring to the game, sort of a classic interview question. And then we ask them uh, uh, you know, an ad hoc whatever, what other helpful info did we forget to ask? So we just ask for that. If if we see that someone sent us a resume, we don't even open the answers. We just delete it because that means they didn't read the ad.
0: Yeah, I was just going to ask you that. When you said that's buried in this long ad, right, that means if they send you a resume, they're just in normal traditional thought mode. And they didn't read the whole thing, and that's not somebody you want on the team, is it?
2: Exactly and, and uh, you know and we're actually to be fair, if we had if we were hiring someone for a very low detailed job then we would not bury it so deeply. We'd probably put it somewhere close to the top where it would be fairly obvious. We'd still want some attention to detail. So each ad is different based on the job that we're hiring for, but most of what we do requires a high sense of detail and high, a high sense of urgency and a, and a, a real attention to detail.
1: I love the, um, the if you us your resume, you didn't read the instructions, so you're already out. <laughs>
2: yeah. I love you know, that. In some, case, in some cases, we put a keyword uh, buried in, if it's excruciating detail, even below that, we'll put a keyword that says, please, please, in the uh, title of your email, put the, put the word balloons so that we know that you read this ad. And you're giving that, us all
1: your secrets now, though. Now, Now you're going to have all these new applicants. Well, one of our five
2: values is abundance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, this book is amazing. I, um, I get such a kick out of the whole idea, in, again, coming from the parents that we came from, right, which was get the gold watch, the 401k, you know, 6% pay increase every year. Yeah. Um, and your book says, don't even worry about making money. Don't yeah. even make that your focus, you know, make culture and have meaning. And then if you do those two things, then, oh, by the way, you'll have an abundance of cash flow.
2: And and this is an abundant truth that that crosses all cultures. Roger, Robert Herjavec, one of the five sharks says, don't go into business to make money, go into business to solve a problem and to do something meaningful. Steve Jobs said, I never got up in the morning thinking about how much money I could make. I got up thinking, what cool technology could I make next that would change the world? the the human packer, Dave Hewlett said uh, our mission is to have a huge impact in the world of technology, the Facebook uh, guys and the Google guys, all these guys, they never went into business to make money and look at how much money they're making. So that's really one of the, that that's a middle, that's a, that's a piece of a big why, but that's just a, a starter to the idea of, of living with a life of purpose.
1: You know, I speak a lot about millennials and, uh, you know, train companies, uh, on how to recruit, hire, train, maintain and motivate millennials, because you said it, they're the first generation didn't grow up with this industrial revolution mentality. And so, you know, they, they don't believe in that whole, get to work early, stay late. You know, right. get there before your boss, leave after your boss, work longer and harder than everybody else, and you know, woo! I'll, that's what it's all about. You know, millennials—they—they want to have meaningful work and they want to work the hours they want to work. Yeah. You know, and so I tell managers all the time, stop trying to manage millennials and just lead them to the outcome you want
2: them to reach. Yeah, Yeah. See, we have a whole—we uh, have a whole track on management versus leadership because. Those two things have been conflated to the point where people say those two words, they think they mean the same thing. They're radically different things. We trace management back to slavery, and we tra- trace leadership back to society. Uh, they have nothing in common. And, and that's one of the differences. Managers will tell you what to do. Leaders will, uh, will agree together with you on what result we should both get. And then we focus on the result. And a millennial will love that. My daughter, when she went to work out of college, she went to work at a very good ad agency, and she would be done every morning with everything they had her to do by le- at 11 a.m., and then she would <laughs> sit there for the next four, five hours. She would walk the building and say, hey, what do you got? What do you got? Give me something else. But by noon, she was done, and she'd sit there for four hours pretending or five hours pretending to have something to do. What if they just said, what res- let's agree together what result uh, gets us this. You know, if we pay you this, we get this result. If you get that result, and that's how we do this with people, we have this saying, if you get us this result, we don't care wh- where you are, and we don't care when you are. Just get us that result. Ricardo Semler started a company in Brazil that has 3,000 people now with no managers, and it's a results-based company, and his statement to his salespeople basically are is, if you sell if we agree together, you need to sell thirty seven widgets a week. and you sell thirty seven by Wednesday, go to the beach and start again on Monday.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. Well, you, you know you it's share- funny
0: oh, go ahead, sandra.
1: I, I say that um you know, management is kind of like a traditional kindergarten, right? You come at eight, you have morning recess at 1030, lunches at 1215, afternoon snack, and then at three, we're going to line up for carpool. And And that leadership of millennials is more like Montessori school, you get dropped off between eight and 830. And the room is filled with all this amazing work, you can choose what you want to work on, you can work on it all day, if you want, you can work and then go outside and be in the garden for a little bit you know and and that's a drastic difference it's you know yep. my kids go to montessori um and and they transition well let me,
2: give you one, let me give you another school system above that because our our education system is also an artifact and a legacy of the industrial age the first mandatory ed, uh, public education was 1850 in massachusetts And the last of the children, I kid you not, they actually drugged them off to school at the point the, the Massachusetts State Guard showed up at people's houses and they took their kids away from them at the point of a gun to take them to school. And the reason was because they said parents didn't have the capability to to give their kids a proper education, just like the industrial age took the brain away from people. This did as well. So we got this whole legacy. In the in the 60s, a bunch of hippies came up with something called Sudbury schools in Sudbury, Massachusetts, and now there's about 50 of them across the nation. And it takes the Montessori thing to a whole new level. It also takes leadership to a whole new level. You know, in a a Sudbury school, there are no uh, no classrooms, no classes. You're not a senior and a fifth grader. There's just 150 kids. There's no classrooms. There's no schedules. There's no uh, textbooks. There's no curriculum. And there are no teachers. Wow. There are facilitators. And the facilitator's job is if two kids are playing cards, he uses that to teach them logic, algebra, all kinds of things. 85% of those self-managed kids go on to higher education and their number one complaint about their college roommates is they can't take responsibility for their lives. We all want to be self-managed. It's in our DNA.
0: I agree with Yeah. And, you know, something you said to us, to me, when we were having coffee that really resonated was, you know what, if you're a, when you're leading, if you're, if you think you're in a leadership role and you're actually giving direction or making a decision, you are no longer leading, you're managing. And yeah. so how do you work with your people? And when we work with our clients and we do our coaching, you know, we have a model that we use and we call it the purpose of leadership. And our acronym for that is called v Steel. This comes out of the transformational leadership work that we do. The first one is to cast that vision. People have to know you know right. what they're doing and why it's important and why those widgets fit in or this project. What does it fit into not only here in the organization but maybe the impact we want to have in the community, how that links to your own personal vision and mission. Then we want to s v steel right s is serve We want to help them be successful. But then we have to teach, train, and equip them. And that is, like you. so they're the right person. We have to give them teaching, the knowledge, training, the experience to use that knowledge, the equipping, the tools to be able to succeed at what they've been asked to do. Because when I start doing that to people, I can start delegating. And as a coach, my biggest thing, I'm trying to teach people, and in a lot of companies, uh, this is counterintuitive, but if you come to me and ask me a question, hey, John, how do I do this? is sometimes it's a lot simpler for me i think right this is a misconception to say chuck here's what you do boom 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 grab this do this do this do this guess what i didn't do anything to empower you because when you have the question again you're going to come back and ask me the same question but if i go well here you know here's the knowledge the experience the tools you have Mm -hmm. what would you do what's your plan you know what that sounds pretty good to me why don't you go try it even if I know maybe that's not going to give you the best result, but it's the only way you're going to be uh, able to learn. But if I do that over and over, now I have somebody who's completely self-activated and I trust them because it's, it's in that teach, training, and equipping area that I can actually now delegate successfully. People don't understand how to delegate because from delegation then comes complete empowerment. And then I can let you go to go do what you need to do and then evaluate that whole process yep. and say, how do we do this even better?
2: Now you're, you're, you're speaking to one of the fundamental uh, differences between management, or two of the fundamental differences between management and leadership. One is managers tell, leaders train, and they train by asking. And, and that's a difficult thing for people to get to. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, says, when I'm making decisions, I am not leading. Mm-hmm. And Ricardo Semler, at the tenth anniversary, they had a big birthday cake when he turned over the leadership and the decision making of his company, a a billion dollar corporation, to other people. They actually had a cake ten years later to celebrate the tenth anniversary of Ricardo not making decisions. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, but but one of the problems, what you hit on there, John, was that it's easier for people. To, uh, right up front, it actually is easier for me to just tell you what to do. When you ask me how do I do this, it's easier right now in the moment and faster for me to just say, go do that. Short term. What that, what, but what that creates then is the classic manager-employee relationship, which you uh, hit on earlier, Sandra, with the, what we call the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, office daycare center right. where you have to tell people what to do. And it's the codependence. There's three kinds of relationships at work. There's independence, which is the rugged individualist. That's not good. There's codependence, which is employee manager, which is what most relationships at work are and what Scott Adams made millions of dollars on in Dilbert is the codependence. And then the, the proper relationship is interdependence where two individuals are not leaning on each other, they're standing side by side. They don't need each other to survive, but they recognize that the two of them are better together, that two of them together are better than both of them apart. And that's harder to get to to begin with. And and John, to your point, the only way to get there is to not answer the question. Leaders train and they train by asking questions. So it's the Socratic method. They come to you and say, what should you do? what should I do? And they say, well, and then you say, well, what do you think you should do? And you coach them and you train them and you equip them to figure that stuff out for themselves. You teach them how to answer their own questions and then you get the blankety blank out of the way. Leaders get out of the way, managers never do.
0: How, how yeah. about those folks that are just, yeah, and they're across the generations, right? They're really it's very uncomfortable for them to kind of let go of that control. It's been modeled to them to their whole life. They feel like, you know, whatever this team does or this team, I'm not leading the team, this team that I'm a part of, the outcome that this team delivers is going to be directly affecting my opportunities, my income, my my next job that I have. So really enabling everybody around me, um, sometimes is you know stuck in this mindset that that is actually going to be you know, uh, could hurt me, right? And, and of- so how how do we help people to just start actually letting go some of this uh, control uh, that we pulled in?
2: Two things: it's a lot of industrial age nonsense, head trash that we've been taught that somehow I will actually be better if I do this. I was I was pulled into one of the top five largest uh, software companies in the world to help them figure out how to redesign their organization. And I told them it's not possible because they are in a hero genius model. And the hero genius model is the most common model of hiring at work where we hire people who are all George Patton's or Steve Jobs who can single-handedly pull stuff off at a level that uh, normal human beings can't. The problem with that is that it only works to a certain level. And the complexity of an organization will will uh, show that you can't do that going forward. But the head trash here is, is actually you're stupid and lazy and I'm smart and motivated or I'm more experienced, I have more education, fill in the blank, however you want to, to be nice about stupid and lazy and smart and motivated. We, we create that dichotomy between you need me and, and, and I need you. And I'm going to tell you what to do. And all of a sudden I find out, hey, if he tells me what to do, I don't actually have to take responsibility work. I kinda like this and now we have codependence. So this is a two-way problem. The manager has his ego and his power and his authority and his command all tied up in this stuff. And I enable him because I actually don't want to make decisions at work. I don't want to be an adult at work. I actually enjoy being a child at work. So we have to back on both sides. Managers have to become leaders. And employees have to become stakeholders, self-managed adults who don't need to be told what to do anymore. And our data is around 81% of the people who work will get there, and the other 19% are incorrigible.
1: <laughs> there are only two options, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, interdependence or incorrigible i love that well you know i i really like how this whole idea for the book started you sort of wrote this blog post back in 2012 and you know just pouring sort of your your historical beliefs and how you saw this evolution of management and leadership yeah. and mindlessness and why don't you talk a little bit
2: about what happened you kind yeah, of that's actually blog. about 2005 in the early ages of blogging I read. I read this guy. I read a blog post from a guy who said that uh, he basically, when he goes to work, he parks himself in his in uh, he parks his car. He leaves himself in the car. He goes into work. He comes out every day at noon to reunite with himself for a few minutes. Goes back into work, and he says, "I do this every day," and I always hope that I'll get out at the end of the day to reunite with myself before I'm just plain gone. And it was. It was a seminal moment for me it's like this was a kid in a technology company this is not a factory worker in 1903 they have taught him leave yourself in the car just bring the part of you that programs that work is still dehumanized and I never ran any of my 11 companies that way I just did it naturally left-handed right-brained and ADHD so I never looked around we just did what worked and it it worked well and this was a wake-up call to me so I began to look at this stuff and help my friends and in 2012, I wrote a blog post that basically said that this whole thing is broken, that we have to figure out how to uh, to rehumanize the workplace and give everybody their brain back. And the thing went viral. I, I literally sat up in bed, wrote for 20 minutes, wrote a 600 or 800 word blog post. And uh, uh, the next day I checked my Google Analytics and it was, it was going viral all over America. And six months later, I checked them again and 2,000 people had hit it on New Year's Eve in Finland. <laughs> and so I knew I was on something. It's like, what are these people doing? Get a life. And so that's when I decided I need to write this stuff down and make a book out of it. In 2012, 2013, we wrote the book.
0: Hey, Chuck, question for you. So, you know, people listening right now. Um, they're at a company. They're in an organization that that is not the kind of organization that you're describing or advocating for. That I think we all would agree that this is where we want to work, right? I'm not the boss. I'm not the CEO. I, I can't just go in and say, "Okay, guys, we're gonna we're 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 gonna make some changes around here," um, because I know you you know in the groups that you do, and we'll talk a little bit about your three to five groups. Man, there's so many people that are just kind of. They found themselves in, in some of these places that are not just feeding into who they are and their DNA and their, and their passions. What choices do they have? What advice do you give to folks that are kind of, you know, they they feel they don't want to be stuck personally, but they're, they, sure. they're in that situation?
2: Yeah, I, I had two, uh, two, two times in my life I was a captive employee. And one of those two, I figured out how to take my little department of 11 people and make it self-managed. So I told everybody what they needed, I I, I worked on a fo- I focused on a results oriented mentality upstream, hey guys what result do you want from our department and if I get you that result do you care how I do it as long as it's legal, moral, and ethical and everybody's happy and they said sure whatever yeah. and uh, in, a, in a company where the, the happiness score out of five was generally around two ours was 4.3 and the only reason it wasn't a five is because they had to deal with the rest of the organization. We just we just build our own internally, and we focused on the results. So if you have any kind of of responsibility for people, you can you can make one other person self managed, and the two of you can have a better life. That's a start. But then go find one of these hundred large corporations or thousands of smaller companies. They're out there. When you are interviewing for a job, interview for work. An interview for culture. You should be interviewing them and do not settle. I know we feel like we have to, but if you've got a job in a corporation right now that's all Dilbertized, boys, sp- spend the next year or two looking uh, concertedly for a, a great match where you can find someone who will actually let you have a brain. They are out there. Here's the horrible statistics. Uh, 30, uh, 70% of people at work are phoning it in right now. Gallup does this survey mm-hmm. every month. 70% are phoning it in, 51% have their resumes out right now, actively looking for work. They don't want what they've got, and 86% have not found their ideal job yet. They haven't found anything that they can really be passionate about. So that's just a crime. If we had machines like that, we would never put up with 30% uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 capacity. But uh, so we, I would encourage people to not be one of those people to D- demand that you get into a position where you can find a company that will rehumanize the workplace or start one yourself.
1: Do you think I, you know, I, I love the work that you're doing all over the world. You know, you're working, you know, this, this, the consulting piece of this uh, approach you're doing all over the world, Ireland and Congo. And I love that because so many, People believe that oh, you know, America is ahead. America is the front line of of the work, you know, culture of the world. And so, could you talk a little bit about that? Because sure. I think you you've seen
2: the opposite. Yeah, it's going to take a while, but I can tell you now. It might be five years. It might be thirty years. It might be forty years. But Central Africa is going to be leading the world. It's going to be the first world, and the, re- and the number one reason is this. In the Congo, the Congo has 65 million people. It's, every- it's the size of everything east of the Mississippi, has more natural resources than probably any other country. Uh, uh, nation on earth has something like $40 trillion worth of stuff in the ground that has been untapped, has the second largest watershed in the, in the world next to the Amazon. Agriculture is stupefyingly promising there. But the number one reason that it is going to blow up in the next 30 years is because 95% of the people in the Congo own their own business right now. It is entrepreneurial On a a scale that America has no relationship with, 15% of people in America own their own business, 95% in the Congo do. And when you poll them, they say, no, I would not take twice as much money to work for somebody else. So yeah, they're dirt poor, but they don't see themselves as poor. They see themselves as free. And that freedom and that innovative spirit and that creativity with those resources, look out. That thing is going to blow up. It might take 30 or 40 years because there's so much junk. There's so much political nonsense. But I guarantee you once they get some of that stuff sorted out, just like China did, we think China's the first world. Nope, it's Central Africa, and it's because of entrepreneurialism.
0: Do you think there's a wow. movement, a wave of entrepreneurialism coming into America?
2: Yeah. And I think this. one of the ironic things about the Industrial Age is it gave us all these cool technologies that will allow us to leave the Industrial Age. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, 3D printing, I can make a salt shaker now in my garage that would have taken a large factory to make t- even 15 years ago. Uh, I can drive for Uber, uh, uh, Skype, or uh, uh, Airbnb is now the largest hotel hotelier in the world and they don't own a single property. Uh, economists are calling this the gigging economy because as Einstein said, I don't know it was Einstein, but the mind that created the problem is not the mind that can solve it. And so, and Drucker said that we're looking back on, we're looking t- forward and we're trying to use the ba- the past and the past is not sufficient to solve the future. So we call this a gigging economy, John, and it's not. It's uh, it's a, it's a I, I giggle because the economists are struggling. to, They're trying to figure out what is going on here. And they're saying we're going through a phase where people are gigging and gigging is a pejorative. It's like, well, it's this side thing. i I played clarinet for years or saxophone, and I would gig on a Friday night for 20 bucks. That's a gig. You know, I have a real job, and then I have a gig. Guess what? This is just the beginning. If people can take control of their destiny, they're going to. We will have a, a in any opportunity someone has to make something close to uh, what they used to make working for a giant corporation and have freedom, They're going to do it. So this is the beginning of a landslide. People are not going back to jobs. They want work. And any company that wants to hire someone better have meaningful work where everybody gets to act like an owner or they're just simply going to go do it themselves because the technology is now available for them to run away from you.
0: And when you have companies that are having results like yours are and some of my client companies and Sandra, the groups that we work with now, you know, people also, they're looking around and everything is so connected, when I do have friends of mine that are in a culture like yours, right, or a culture like we're describing, all of a sudden there's like this giant uh, magnetic force that's pulling these qualified, talented, passionate people into an area where they can do their best work and also enjoy life. Because, you know, in another mindset that was in the industrial age is kind of like this whole concept of work-life balance, which I think is a total myth. And yeah. i got to tell you what, this younger generation, it is completely integrated. Work is life. Life is work. And that yeah. is why I'm so dissatisfied because if I'm working for this monolithic company uh, or I'm told what to do and, you know, that's extending into my private life, then, you know, that, that, that's not working for me.
2: John, test me. And Sandra, test me on this going forward with uh, – just, not just today but as you look at stuff we're doing, every dumb thing that we are still doing – is a vestige of the Industrial Age, including separation of work and play. That did not exist before the Industrial Age. We were we had we lived integrated lives, and work-life balance is nonsense. You wanna be, you wanna do something great, you will not have a balanced life. I don't care who you are, you look at any person who has done something, done something significant in the world around them and they did not live a balanced life. Margaret Thatcher, Mahatma Gandhi, Jesus, I mean, you just keep going. It doesn't matter. They didn't live balanced lives. They lived focused lives, and that doesn't mean that you have to ignore your family. I got offered a job uh, a, a, to to run a corporation in uh, 15 years ago. They were going to give me $235,000 and just give me 10% of the company to move to Napa Valley. I kid you not, right in the right on the strip, and run this corporation. Uh, from napa valley and it was an easy no because my daughter was in ninth grade and the mover at the time wouldn't have made sense that's completely out of balance so you know at, at we're, we're different you know everything has its season but there's no such thing as work-life balance you don't get seven things at once and have this nice tight little life unless you want to have a meaningless insignificant life the people who live balanced lives do nothing significant
1: Wow, that's profound. Because think about all the books that are written on balance right now, and yeah. all the people that are going out hearing
2: a speaker on how to have a balanced life. And well, again, I, Sandra, I totally agree. Sandra, look at this. What are we talking about? This is another vestige of the industrial age. Yeah. The industrial age taught us that we would work 20 hours a day for the man. And now we're trying to find a way out of that. It's, we're answering the wrong question.
1: Well, and if you look historically, you know, we had the little red schoolhouse where people of all ages went to school and they all learned from one another. And everyone, you know, 98% of Americans worked on a farm where the work and the play and the learning was all together. It was all integrated. So I love that word integrated, you know, not balance, but integration, you know, bring your kids to work, give your kids jobs in your company. um, You know, hire your neighbors, hire your mom, do whatever it takes, uh, you know, to, to keep it all going, but keep everybody engaged. You know, someone said uh, this to me yesterday, you know, When God looks at us, he looks at a married couple as one. And so, if we are looking to be, quote, successful, we can't just go to work and leave our spouse completely out of it, right? Because we're in that covenant relationship with a spouse. They have to be integrated into what we're doing, even if they don't work there. But so many of us come home, we leave what happened in our day in the car, right? We have this commute, and so we leave it in the car, and then we come in and we're making dinner and we're, you know, helping with homework and all that fun stuff. And, you know, you go, hey, honey, how was your day? Oh, fine. Uh, how was yours? Great. And, and there's no integration of what's going on in my work life, right? Well, if you really start thinking about that, that's a, a huge flaw. Um, and again, one, you know, that guy that described leaving himself in the car, I mean, that that's pretty drastic. But that's, I think, what most of us try to do.
2: Yeah. I, Davida has 65,000 stakeholders. They make dialysis machines. In 1992, three six, somewhere in there, they were bankrupt. The guy who took them over changed the culture and decided we were going to focus on the people instead of the product. Absolutely, you know, industrial age wise, what a dumb idea. Today they're uh, hugely successful. 65,000 people uh, making uh, you know, making incredible products. And their entire focus is on making sure that they take care of their people. And I interviewed them for one of my Inc. articles, and uh, one of the leaders, multiple leaders, said that their single biggest responsibility was, was not about the product but about the people and making sure that everyone was building community at work. Even the word DeVita uh, says it has about it, – it, uh, it, it means he or she gives life. And it's about building community. and they talk about being a sixty five thousand person village. And one of the statements that rings in my ears was, if one of the people that works with me, if if their mother went into the hospital last night, <clears throat> <and clears throat> excuse me, if their if their mother went into the hospital last night and I don't find out about it that day, there's something wrong with. I, I have failed that relationship. That's integration. It's a beautiful thing.
1: That is beautiful. Wow, you know, I I love the the three to five. Can you talk a little bit about how that integrates with this cultural stuff?
2: Yes, we uh, three to five club is for small business owners. We do business advisory for larger companies, um, uh, you know, from the one to hundred million kind of things. Usually, uh, we don't usually work with a lot of uh, of public corporations, but sometimes we'll do some of that. But uh, three to five club is for companies basically a million and under. And therefore, companies where these these guys are just getting their start and really started their business based on being really good at some uh, some technical thing or some craft. They're a great programmer, or they're a great chairmaker or they're a great lawyer. Fill in the blank. But they didn't le- learn business. We work with a lot of dentists. But dentists have a and has something like two or two hundred some hours of of uh, work that they take in dental school. I think two of it is on business is on business, and none of it is on leadership. So they get nothing on that. So we, we help in three to five clubs we, and uh, in those kinds of things. We help people with their bill, business skills. It's based on my first book, Making Money is Killing Your Business. We created a, a, a syllabus, of a 24-month syllabus. These people get together in groups of 24, the same groups. They pay a fee, and they get together in groups of 24 twice a month, and they walk through each of the things in the syllabus on how to run the business side of their craft. Uh, we, in that context, we talk about four fundamentals, uh, the big why, a strategic plan, freedom mapping, and outside eyes. Those are the four fundamentals of every business, and we teach them the 24 things surrounding those four. Uh, outside eyes is what they get in the two weeks, uh, the two times they get together during the, the month for community, and then they have one-to-ones with each other. And then the freedom maps is a the mapping their way off the, off the treadmill, they need a strategic plan for building their business, not a business plan. And then the biggest one is the big why. And, you know, I'd love to make sure we get a chance to talk about that and circle back to that because we started to that. But that's what three to fives are, are all about. It's about helping people figure out how to get off the treadmill and build a business that makes money when you are not around.
0: And let, You know, let's do that now because uh, let's circle back to that big why. Um You, got, you know, because that's kind of where we started. I think that's a great way to kind of – land the plane here a little bit. And what are your uh-huh. thoughts on that? How, how, do, how do we find it? How do we connect sure. to it? Because what I have found working with a lot of folks is answering that question, sometimes couched in the area of, you know, what's my calling? What's my purpose? You know, sure. um, uh, people kind of get, I think, lost in sometimes the semantics of the words, vision, purpose, mission. But uh-huh. I love kind of distilling it down to, hey, what's your why? So let me turn that over to you, Chuck.
2: Sure, you bet. Now, the, the big why is, is vastly different than any other why, or, the, or a lifetime goal is vastly different than any other goal you will ever have in your life. It's, and it's utterly simple. It's one thing a, a big why, a strategic or a lifetime goal, is different than any other goal in this one way. It's a goal that you can never check off as complete. And it's something that you want, to, you want to work at, you want to build on every day, but you'll never finish it. So it's not a giant why. People misunderstand this. They think uh, that you want me to solve poverty in Africa. No, we don't need 360 million Americans running around in Central Africa trying to do that. It would be a mess. It's not about a giant why, it's about a continuous why. Here's a big why. I want to be the best mom ever. Well, when will you finish that? You can do the best you can today and then you get up tomorrow and you do it again and my mother was 92 and she was still trying to be the best mom she could be. That is a big why and if, it's, if it'll get you out of bed the rest of, the, of your life and drive you then that's one of the things that you can have as a lifetime goal that will be, that you can never check off as complete. Giving to a charity, creating a charity, getting involved in, in helping other people in some way. The dirty little secret in a big why, the, the great component in a magical big why is this this secret, the happiest people on earth are the people solving other people's problems, not their own. So your big why should have a component of always solving other people's problems. A friend of mine who was one of our three to five club members owned a nice tight little mortgage company. He started to get the idea of a big why. He was in his mid fifties at least. And he'd been doing this for 20 plus years. And he was just going through the motions, had a nice, great house, nice living, and he got his big Y, and he came to me one day, and he said, I know I've got my big Y, we have a three-and-a-half-hour workshop on this, and he said, I know, I know I've got my big y. I said, great, how do you know? And he says, and he looks at me with steely-eyed conviction, and he says, because it has me. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Let me test that. How do you know it has you? And he says, because every day when I get up, I think about my big Y. It's driving me. And every decision I make in life now, this is integration. Every decision I make in life, whether it's personal or in business, I ask myself, will that help me fulfill my big why today, this week, this month, this year, and the rest of my life? And every decision I make, whether it's buying a copy or starting a new business, is going through that. Five years later, he has five assisted living centers, is a multimillionaire, as a direct result of him following his big why. And his big why was to help people get from where they are to where they need to be, he ran across a guy who was out of work, who had spent 15 years running a 16-person assisted living center, and he said, "I know this stuff blind. I can do it. There's a huge need. The baby boomers needed. I just don't have any finance." He he uh, dropped four or five hundred thousand dollars. They bought their first facility, and off they went. He knew nothing about that business. So that's a compelling business, a big why, and he'll never finish it. He brought a dog. I kid you not. He brought a dog from somebody else's assisted living center that had linoleum floors. He brought this like 14-year-old Labrador Retriever to his facility because they have carpet and the dog couldn't stand up anymore on the linoleum. I mean, it's just taking dogs from where they are to where they need to be. Everything in his life runs through that. My big why is to live well. By doing good and I could unpack that for four or five Guinnesses for you you know we can go in in multiple directions with that so that's the kind of thing we're talking about and if you have a big why you will find measurable specific ways to, to work that out every day every week every month every year that's the kind of stuff that will get you out of bed and it will cause you to leave a meaningless job and to get into a job that you can integrate into your purpose or to start a business that will allow you to live out your purpose.
0: Chuck, that was awesome, man. I don't know if you noticed this, man, but you have you got some energy about you. And this whole interview has just been rocking and rolling. But right there, as you were sharing that, man, you were you were just in a different gear, my friend. So it's this this is passionate, do. isn't
2: it? Yeah, it's the reason we do what we do with business owners. Our, our 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 mission statement doesn't have it in there, but it is why we always get to this. Because if we don't, the business owner won't be successful.
0: Mm. Well, hey, how do people connect with you, find you, learn more about 3 to 5, Crankset Group, your books? Where well, do they, go? they can Google
2: Chuck Blakeman, and I'm all over the internet that way. We, that's pretty convenient, but chuckblakeman.com. That's a good place to start. Uh, and they can find my two books, Making Money is Killing Your Business and Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea. Ironically, even though I almost never made it through education, it took me 19 years to even get a bachelor's, those are now being taught as college courses at places like University of Georgia. So they can find those books, but start at chuckblakeman.com or cranksetgroup.com, but Chuck Blakeman's probably the place to start, and then you can find all our other, we got six or eight websites from there.
1: You yeah. know, what I love, Chuck, is you have something for the large corporation, you know, through Crankset, you've got three to five club for the, you know, 12 million small to medium sized businesses across America. You've got the books for individuals. And, you know, I love your TED Talks. I mean, I I, I could just sit there and listen to you uh, do TED Talks all day. So, you know, you've got someone for who's sitting at home, you know, trying to decide, hey, what, what am I going to do? What's my my next big thing and what's my why so you know i think john of the people we've interviewed you know chuck's kind of like he's got this whole spectrum of amazing content and the other thing i like is it's it's just regular stuff you know it's based on history it's based on common sense it's based on emotional intelligence and and kindness and and loving others and uh,
0: being human right sandra (gasps)
1: No. absolutely you know uh, my my term is authenticity is the new black um you know that if we could all stop trying to be who our neighbor wants us to be and be who the lord created us just imagine what the world would be like and and this is kind of the corporate version of that so say, i think that's why i'm so excited
2: we say this all the time uh, I, I say this all the time this isn't a book i wrote this isn't a a a, 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 a speech I gave. This isn't a a, a business I wrote. This is a life I've lived. Mm. So it's all common sense. Uh, In my first book in the forward, I say I've never had an original idea and I'm okay with that. I'm pretty sure you haven't either. I'm just going to rearrange them in a way that maybe makes sense to you. And if that works, then great. We'll just keep going. So I appreciate that affirmation. The other thing we have going is cranksetonline.com. We just uh, started our courses. We're going to have courses probably 20 or 30 courses we just rolled our first one cranksetonline.com so you can go there and check out our first course on how to how to build a business that makes money when you are not there make more money in less time that's the idea
0: love that and just you know as we wrap up here chuck just you know people have been listening for the last hour just what what final thoughts would you leave with the folks
2: yeah i'd go back to the big why number one uh, figure out what you're doing. It's the top of the pyramid. It's the number one thing that will drive you. What are you doing this for? and it's not to make money. Time, money, and energy are resources. Why do you want them? Find a compelling reason that will impact the world around you for that. And then secondly, uh, say this in front of a mirror like hot like uh, Stuart Smalley on on uh, Saturday Night Live. you know I'm smart enough. I'm smart. well, your statement is going to be, I'm not smart. I'm just relentless. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be lucky. I can tell you the number one attribute of successful people is they are relentless. And I could go on and on about Ray Kroc, who is not very smart and really wasn't very ethical either. But the dude was relentless. And that's the number one reason McDonald's exists, because he just wouldn't give up when the McDonald's brothers did. So find your big why and never give up.